Hello, you're very welcome into NCBI's Technology Podcast. This is episode number 22 for March 2014. My name is Stuart Lawler. Thank you very much for subscribing to and downloading NCBI's Technology Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, if you hear anything on today's program that interests you, or you want to give us feedback, we'd love to hear from you. The email address is technologypodcast at ncbi.ie. Now, coming up over the next 55 minutes, I'm chatting with Jonathan Mosen from New Zealand about a new service and website called Accessible.net. And then I get to take more or less the rest of the podcast off because Carl Joyce is hosting a very interesting and long-awaited discussion on low-vision technology with Dervila Drummy, Oren O'Neill and Byron Lee. That's all coming up on this month's edition of NCBI's Technology Podcast. First up this month, however, we love to hear from our listeners. You can send an email at any time to technologypodcast at ncbi.ie. And thank you to everybody who gets in touch and uh, gives us some very useful feedback. We an email from Sean Cassidy, uh, who says, Many thanks for the excellent features on the magazine, as they are most interesting and informative. Looking forward to the March edition, and not only for the general discussion, but for the feature on the iMac shortcut keys that is completely different to the iPad in a number of ways. I've downloaded the Downcast app, and it is just brilliant so many thanks for the feature regards from Sean Cassidy Sean many thanks to you for getting in touch and uh, very much appreciate your email and feedback our good friend Marcus Butner in Galway sent us an email and he was making some comments on the Flexi VO app that was the app that Kerry was telling us about on the February edition of the podcast and of course it's a replacement at least for now to the mainstream Flexi app for those of us using iOS with voiceover and he was making the point that it is better to have discourse and an open uh, conversation with the developers while they make the uh, mainstream Flexi app accessible and that using Flexi VO at the moment is a pretty good replacement. So many thanks, Marcus, for that. For that, We're going to hear from Marcus uh, on the next couple of podcasts and um, next month or two because he's going to be doing an interesting review for us uh, about a new Facebook app. And that's about all I know at the moment. Now, we had planned to bring you something this month on uh, iOS, uh, on Mac OS, rather, the first of our tutorials. Uh, that's been held off for a month or two because we've had a couple of technical problems in getting that put together, but Kerry is working hard on it and we will be bringing that to you just as soon as we can. There are lots of other things planned for our podcast in the next couple of months, including a review of the Microsoft Surface Pro with JAWS. We're going to be talking about jailbreaking your iOS device and that's a whole topic in itself. And we're going to be listening to an interview I did very recently with a gentleman by the name of Sam Jewel, who's created a new stand that allows you to use your iPhone camera to scan uh, using OCR. We'll also be talking to Dara O'Haley in the coming months because he's been doing a lot of evaluating of window eyes for Office, so it'll be very interesting to hear what he has to say, and there's even more. As always, if you have suggestions, comments, or questions, please send an email to technologypodcast at ncbi.ie.
Now, how many times have you bought an app on your Android or iOS device, loaded it up, and it hasn't quite done what you expected? Maybe there's unlabeled buttons, you spend a lot of time trying to mess around to get it just right, or in a worst-case scenario, it just hasn't worked at all. I can personally attest to this having happened for me, and you're not always sure how to get in touch with the app developer, and even if you do know how to get in touch with them, you're not always sure what to tell them is wrong. Well, with me is someone who may have the answer to that, CEO of a new company called Accessible.net, which was launched in January. We're delighted to have him back live from New Zealand, Jonathan Mosen. Hi, Jonathan. What a build-up. It's great to be back with you, Stuart. Thank you. <laughs> Very welcome. Um, we, we'll come back to talk about Accessible in a second, but we had you on last May, I think, on our podcast. Um, yeah. And since then, you've been, you've been writing a couple of books. I have. That takes a lot of discipline, actually, but I've enjoyed the discipline of sitting down and writing a book. A very different process from, say, doing an audio tutorial. I did one book on Twitter called Tweeting Blind, which introduces people to Twitter and how you use it on a range of platforms. And I also wrote one called iOS 7 Without the Eye, which looks at all the new features from a blindness perspective in Apple's iOS 7. I got a copy of the iOS 7 book. I uh, highly recommend it. And I suppose what I really liked about it was the way you broke the operating system right down. I mean, I learned things about the notification center because that really threw me when I upgraded to iOS 7 because it's very different. Yes. And one of the things that inspired me to write it was that visually iOS 7 looks very different. And so a lot of the tech publications I knew would focus on the eye candy stuff and You know, the way that it looks for a blind person isn't that significantly different, but there are quite a lot of new features lurking around in there. And so I thought, okay, well, this is a a chance for me to write them all up. And, you know, there are a lot of free resources out there that tell you about iOS 7. Apple Vis, for example, does a fantastic job. But a lot of people said to me, look, we would like to have a reference book, you know, one place that you can go that's nicely indexed and marked up where you can just skim through and look for the new features. And it was a really popular release. All right. Well, highly recommend the iOS 7 book. Of course, your your tweeting is, um, book is also available and they're both on um, Mosin.org. Is that correct? Yeah, you've uh, got the opportunity to go there and then choose the store link. And there are a few webinars and books available from that page. And I'm working on another couple of projects. And you can also buy through National Braille Press in a number of formats, including hard copy Braille. And I don't know what the process is for shipping something like that to Ireland, but I presume it would go free matter. Yeah. And um, also in a couple of other ebook formats as well. So National Braille Press or my site, Mosin.org, are the places to get them. All right, fantastic. Now, Accessible.net. I, I, I heard about it, I suppose, as most people did on the day it launched. I listened to a boo you recorded, read the press release. Mm. And I just, I mean, I must say, the first thing I thought was, why didn't someone do this ages ago? Because it was such a simple solution to a problem that, um, you, you know, you, you open an app and it doesn't quite work as you expected. Is this something that people were saying to you? Or is that, was this a personal experience you had as well? Or, or what kind of got you in this idea? Actually, when we were talking last May, I was starting work on this project. So it's been long in the gestation, this one. And I started to think about new challenges and things I'd like to do and where technology was headed. And I realized that, you know, there are a lot of blind people who get an app and 
they know it's not working right and they really would like to be able to kind of refer them, maybe reporting them is a bit too strong a term, but they'd like to be able to have somebody take a look and maybe contact the app developer and work constructively with them. And then I thought, well, you know, I did some research on this and I found that a lot of app developers still don't know that blind people are even using iOS or Android devices. Somebody I talked to recently thought that, yeah, okay, blind people can use them, but they can only use apps that are specifically written for blind people. They didn't realize that their app could possibly be usable and accessible to and of interest by uh, blind people. So then I thought, well, Blind people have skills, you know, and a lot of blind people are very skilled users of their device, and we've got this high unemployment rate problem, and we've got skills that can help app developers to make a better living. So I thought, well, why give those skills away? We should be able to find a way to put these two marketplaces in touch with one another. Blind people who are willing for a little bit of money to share their expertise and app developers who for a little bit of money are willing to pay to make sure that their app is usable by a wider range of people. So we created this kind of marketplace really called Accessible that brings the two interests together. It's it's very interesting because it strikes me as really important. I, I remember a couple of years ago, there's a very good app I'm going to blatantly promote here on the podcast in Ireland uh, called Jelly SMS, which was made by an Irish company headed up by a gentleman called uh, Finbar Brady. But when I contacted him to say the app wasn't accessible, he was really brilliant and he wanted to know how he could turn on voiceover. And I even remember thinking at the time, while I was delighted he wanted to do that, the experience he'll get as a sighted person is going to be different to the experience I get, right? Yeah, that's exactly the point. You've got it right. See, what happens is that a sighted person turns on voiceover and suddenly they're in a completely different world from the device that they know and love because the gestures are different, the way you interact with it is different. And even if you take the time, and yeah, we want to make this as easy for developers as possible to to make their app accessible. But even if they took the time to learn about voiceover and the different gestures, the fact is they're not blind and they, they're not used to how much an app should talk or whether the app is talking too much. And so what we do with Obsessible is we use real-world end users who are blind. We don't use any automated process. If an app developer contacts us for an audit, we take their app, we go through it screen by screen, control by control, and we write a report customized to their particular app and tell them exactly what needs to improve to make the app more attractive to voiceover or talkback users. So let's talk about those two distinct parties, let's say, for a moment. First of all, the users, the blind, low vision users who might find their app, their favorite app they've just upgraded or whatever, isn't working as well as it used to. Do they contact you and you contact the developer or should they contact the developer and say, hey, guys, look, go over to Obsessible? How does that work? It's a very tricky balancing act for us, we're finding, because we don't want to get a reputation for spamming developers. But if a blind person, an end user, contacts us to say, look, I'm trying to use this particular app and I'm having some issues. Would you mind getting in touch with the app developer? Then we will do that and we'll say, look, we got contacted by a user of your app who would like to be able to make better use than they can at present of your app. And we, we trust you don't consider this spammy. So, you know, it's a fine line. We certainly would encourage anybody to contact the app developer directly and say, look, if you want 
to work with a bunch of people who can help make your app accessible, then contact Accessible and set up an account. And what happens, by the way, is that, I mean, what, what you see when you go to Accessible.net is kind of a shop window. But when a developer registers and seeks an audit of their app, they actually get their own little portal. They log on with their own username and password that's assigned to them when they pay. They can log in and an evaluator is assigned to them. So the evaluator might have questions during the process. And so there's a web-based internal email, internal communication system that allows the developer and the evaluator to talk with one another. And then eventually the report is finished and it's produced in PDF and the developer can log back in and download it from their portal, which is unique to them. So, you know, we know that there is some sensitive content that we're dealing with here, particularly when we're dealing with an app that is not yet in the store and we might be dealing with somebody who's got a really great idea and they're worried about it being pinched by somebody else before they can get it into the store. So we are happy to sign non-disclosure agreements and do all those things and make sure that people's intellectual property is appropriately protected. Okay, so I imagine that the, the, the type of conversations that are happening, let's say, between you guys and app developers are, you know, look, when we go here, there's an unlabeled button, you would need to fix this by doing X, Y, and Z. So you're saying what the problem is and giving a, a recommendation or a suggestion? That's right. Well, for example, we've been looking at an app where there's a row of buttons. You know how Often in an iOS app, you've got a series of tabs at the bottom of the screen. Yeah. And, you know, um, in a Twitter client, it might be ho- um, home, direct messages, mentions, whatever. And this app that we've been working on in the last couple of days has just said button, button, button okay. <laughs> as you flick through those tabs at the bottom of the screen. And so we've been able to say, look, as a blind person, we don't know what those buttons do clearly there is some graphical icon there that shows a sighted person what to do but we need text labels on those apps so we do on those buttons so we do get very specific with the recommendations and then for a much smaller fee we will go back and give it a second pass if an app developer says look would you mind looking it over a second time then we will do that as well now are there are there app developers coming to you who are kind of saying i never heard of this this stuff before this voiceover gig is new to me or are, are most of the people you've been dealing with so far are they aware of visually impaired uh, markers their 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 audience out there we have had a number of people who've got in touch and said, look, I really had no idea. I really had no idea this was possible. And we've had quite a lot of publicity. Um, some of it's still yet to come out, but we've been contacted by um, people like from the BBC Click program and various others. And we've had a lot of publicity in local media in New Zealand. And so we've, uh, got, a lot of pub- we've got a lot of references that way, a lot of referees that way. And um, they have said, look, we, we we had no idea that this was even going on, that there was this community of people that we could tap into. And another successful strategy for us has been that on the day that we launched, we put up a YouTube clip, which has had, I think, about 1,500 views last time I checked, which shows a sighted person who might never have seen a blind person using an iPhone before, how we actually do it. And we've just had such amazing, favorable comments on that and then of course i mean there are people who want to do the right thing and we love that you know who just think look this is the right thing to do yeah but in the end app developers have got to make a buck too they've got to put food on the table so we do look at the economic argument as well and um, unfortunately apple either cannot or will not tell us how many people 
they think or know are using voiceover around the world. But the U.S. Department of Treasury a couple of years ago did some research when they were looking at producing a money-identifying app, and they estimated then that around 100,000 blind Americans could be using iDevices. And so when you look at the exponential growth there's been in the last couple of years, and then you extrapolate that and look at how many people outside of the U.S. are probably using iPhones, it's a significant number when you're dealing with such a competitive environment as the App Store. And if you can corner the blind market with a truly accessible app in your particular field, it really is a significant boost to your revenue potentially. Well, that's it. And I know lots of people have said before, we said it on this podcast, blind, low vision users, whatever, we are a market and we're a market that yeah. sometimes people just don't realize we're there. But we're, we're willing to spend money too, you know? Well, uh, yes. And I, I think that we... We need to not look at ourselves as, as charity cases all the time. And obviously, there is a strong moral argument. It's like um, you should make your app accessible just like you should make your, your chickens free range or your eggs free range or whatever. I get that. But in the end, money does talk. And, and I do think this is a win-win situation because there are blind people around the world struggling to find work who have skills that are useful. And so if we can put these two groups together, it's a great, it's a great fit for everybody. It brings me very nicely on to my next question. If there are people listening, and I mean, there's a lot of very talented iOS voiceover users, highly techie. I'm sure you're looking for Android people as well. Or are you? Are you recruiting at the moment? At the moment, we are not because um, we have we have uh, a team of five working on the project at the moment. And that is sufficient right now, given okay. the the amount of interest that we're generating. We hope that as word spreads and as people get the reports, and, and pass on to their developer friends that this really is a legitimate and worthwhile service, that it will grow quickly. But we have had a lot of emails from blind people who have said, look, if you are expanding, I'd be very interested. And we are keeping those on file. So if there are people who are interested, we'll certainly make sure we, we file those away and get to them if we ever get to the point that we can't cope. And I, I hope that we do because the idea is to get uh, get blind people into this as, as much as possible. I was listening to the Accessible podcast, and, and of course, you're really um, reaching out, I guess, to your, well, maybe to both your target markets, your blind and your sighted app developers as well, uh, by just telling them a little bit about what you've been doing, some interviews on there. You talked to the guys over at Flexi. It, what's the kind of, um, what's the thrust of that podcast? Yeah, I'm still working out where we're going with that, but I think what that podcast is about is really trying to find topics of common interest to both communities that we serve, the developer community and the blind community. So when we did the Flexi piece, it was after a blog post I wrote where I expressed real concern about Flexi's strategy of separating voiceover users from the mainstream app and making a blindness specific one and it turns out that's a temporary decision that they've taken and so i thought well it would be useful to do the flexi one first to let developers know of the dangers of perhaps alienating blind people in that way or some blind people because it wasn't a view that was universally shared and secondly to give the blind community a chance to hear flexi's perspective and to know that while their decisions may have upset some people their intentions are very good and they, they, they are deeply committed to accessibility. And I always think that the more you communicate with someone and the more you can have dialogue, the more understanding that you generate. So that's where I think we're going with, with that podcast. 
Excellent. Jonathan, it's a great idea. As I said at the beginning, it's such a, a simple idea and something that I think is, is just going to expand as people are using uh, their devices more. We're becoming more mobile oriented. It's all about apps and all about information on the go. So uh, I think you're, you're tapping into something nice there. Uh, I presume if people want to get more information and see what you guys are doing, they can head over to your website? Yes, at www.appsessible.net. So that's A-P-P and then C-S-S-I-B-L-E dot net. And you can see what we're doing there. You can subscribe to the podcast. We hope to make it available in uh, directories quite soon and podcast directories and that kind of thing to make it easier. But you can subscribe and listen online. And we're also trying something interesting, which I don't think is too common in the blind community yet, but we're uploading the audio of the podcast to our YouTube channel, which is another way that people can listen through YouTube apps and online. Excellent. So go to obsessible.net. We'll put it on the show notes for this episode. Jonathan, it's always nice to chat to you. Let's hope it will not be too long before we do it again. And uh, for the moment, thanks a million for talking to us. Thanks, you. It's always a pleasure. about assistive devices and technology for the blind from screen readers and braille displays to daily living products like colour identifiers and sock locks. There's a wealth of useful and independence-giving gadgets on the market and resources to help find them. But why doesn't a similar range of products seem to exist for the visually impaired? Why does it appear that the efforts of software developers and focus of companies is mostly on catering to the accessibility needs of their blind users and customers? While being completely blind comes with many challenges, the same is also true for those of us with declining or low vision, as the ranges of eyesight vary hugely from person to person, making it more difficult to accommodate our needs. So, is it really all doom and gloom? Is there adequate awareness and technological provisions out there for the visually impaired? Or are we forever destined to fall between the cracks of the sighted and blind worlds? Or are we just fine, thanks very much? My name is Cahal Joyce, and with me to share their experiences and views as visually impaired people are Oren O'Neill, who hails from Dublin. Oren has spent his life recording, editing and mixing sound for TV, and uses both handheld magnifiers and JAWS to work his magic. Next, via an incredibly long Skype line from Waterford, we have Derv Graham, an editor and writer who has written extensively on issues relating to the low vision community, and who's also found time to go on numerous skiing adventures and written a novel about them. Here too, via Skype from the US, is Byron Lee, the man behind a new website, lowvisionrants.com. Byron even bought his own time zone with him today, along with a vast knowledge of the difficulties facing the visually impaired. And lastly, of course, there's me. I work in radio as an audio producer and use the screen magnification software ZoomText. Uh, Byron, I'm going to start with you, if that's all right. You started your website to help sort of release the hounds of your frustration at the, the lack of technology and services for the visually impaired. Why do you think we tend to get the short straw? I think uh, that the companies that exist develop programs for people who are blind because it's frankly a lot easier. When you're developing software for people who are visually impaired, it's hard to know what exactly we need because we are all on a sliding scale uh, and, and we're all over the place on the spectrum and it's hard to know what font we need. It's hard to know what type of magnification or contrast we need. Uh, I do think that they know that we exist. I just think that uh, it, it's much easier, maybe a lot more lucrative uh, in their opinion to make software for people who are blind versus making software for people who are visually impaired. But I'm thinking that as technology progresses and more things get built into the operating system, the necessity to build stuff, especially for us, is getting a little bit less necessary. Is that the way it's going in terms of assistive software, that it just comes 
bundled in the box as part of the main package? Well, of course, like with Windows uh, and Mac, you have the built-in magnifier. And, of course, it does seem to be built-in with the phones as well. But it's not as easy to use on an iOS device. Yeah, because we have major issues. A lot of people have major issues with iOS 7. And I know on your website you have particular articles about how poor iOS 7 is for somebody who's short-sighted. Yeah, they have this thing called dynamic type, um, which is not magnification. It's not zoom. What it is is the ability to increase the size of the text throughout the the, the operating system. And it only works in certain parts of the phone. So it's only going to work in your notes application or your email application. It doesn't work so well in the notifications or the uh, icon text on the home screen. Uh, So I actually have on Low Vision Rants a blog post detailing uh, where iOS 7's dynamic type fails and where it actually does pretty well. And Dervla, you, I know for you that you use a, a Samsung phone. I'll talk about that in a little while. But just to go back to what I asked Byron there, why is there a lack of awareness, do you think, around software and services maybe as well for people who are visually impaired? What's, your, what's, what's been your experience? Because you've written on this obviously before. Well, I had the experience of, you know, when I was a member of the Visually Impaired Computer Society trying to organize training for um, low vision users because I felt there must be an awful lot of them, an awful lot more possibly than there are blind people because there are people developing all these conditions. And I found it very difficult to get both trainers and trainees. I think it's a combination of possibly grappling with um, declining vision and then they may not want to admit that they need the technology. That could be a problem for low vision people. And they may not also, some of them, even realise that they might need technology. You might carry on for years thinking that everything's grand and then you realise you've been straining your eyes and partly grappling with the fact that they have low vision in the first place, um, you know, if, if they've suddenly become um, visually impaired in later life, that that's enough to deal with and therefore they're less inclined to engage with technology. Uh, well, you know, uh, talking about um, finding it difficult to find people to participate, I, I'm sort of having that same problem and perhaps some of that may be due to my, my own lack of uh, motivation, you know, the, the laziness that I, that I uh, sometimes exhibit. But maybe perhaps after a podcast like this where people get to know about it, perhaps they will start showing up. But I found it kind of strange that I did all kinds of Twitter and Facebook promotion to promote the site. And while we have had an influx of new people, it's it's been pretty light on the forums. I'd like to see it a lot a lot busier. And I wonder if that is because like you said, a lot of people who are low vision might be older people who may not necessarily be tech savvy. May maybe those of us who are low vision are of the mindset that we just have to figure it out for ourselves because there's no support system like there is for people who are totally blind and uh, setting up low vision rants was sort of my solution for that trying to fix that problem so it's interesting actually when you said there i remember when i started a course in 2008 and i hadn't used zoom text I'd heard of it, but I'd never used it. And all I did was practice, I would say, lick the screen. It was the guy running the course who somehow was aware of it and just sort of said to me, I think you probably need Zoom text. And I said, really? I don't think so. I'm all right. And it turned out I wasn't all right. And I couldn't have managed at all. But it just never occurred to me, hey, here's something that would make your life easier. As you say, you just kind of get on with it, but it's not necessarily the good way to go about it. I seem to have the same problem. I, I sort of discovered that the magnification... Is something I've sort of fight, fought against for quite a long time. Uh, I've, I've been using a computer since I was a kid and always used the tricks of the trade to make things bigger on the screen. And, of course, I got a Mac 
recently and discovered the Zoom feature that was built into that and the fact that you can hold down a key and use your scroll wheel or your touchpad and use a certain gesture and zoom in and zoom out. And so that kind of took my frustration with magnification software where I didn't want to see a a postage stamp sized portion of my screen and not be able to see the big picture. And it sort of turned that on its head because now I can zoom in and zoom out only during the times where I actually need to see something and then zoom out and see the whole big picture again. So I'm actually starting to kind of lean a little bit towards magnification software, which is a big surprise for me because I've not used it for so long. Yeah, you you actually used, did you say to me before, you use like a handheld regular magnifying glass to magnify the screen? Yeah, a lot of times I will just grab a a handheld magnifier and hold it up to the screen and see what I've got to see, and then I'll put it down and go back to what I'm doing. Uh, Of course, I'll do things like Control Plus or Minus in Firefox to make it bigger or smaller. Um, In the old days, you used to be able to reduce your resolution on your screen to a certain point so that everything would seem bigger but now with these high definition screens and software that uh it seems to be more limited uh in terms of changing your resolution like it seems to me i just find that something like voiceover that's built in is just better designed and is just more functional than the zoom like you've obviously found it works well I actually use the uh, voiceover function in my iPhone more than I use the Zoom because, at least with the Mac, if you zoom in, you can use one finger to move around. But with the Mac, you have to use three fingers to move the camera around. And I hate that. I know. I, I don't get it. That's why I'd love to know who sat down and said, yeah, that's a great idea. Use three fingers to block the screen while you zoom around. God. It is. It's really weird because you, you guys obviously have the. I know uh, Derby, you have the Samsung phone. We'll maybe talk about that in a little while. Um, and Orin as well. Actually, Orin, we'll bring you in at this point. Sorry, we kind of left you out in the cold there for a little while. Um, what's What's been your experience? Because I know you're coming from a slightly different perspective than perhaps the rest of us here. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I'm very I'm very surprised with uh, is there's there's a common thread here that we all seem to adapt uh, and not not uh, shout out and. Um, try and get technology to move forward for us. I started using uh, uh, Zoom text purely on the basis that I, <laughs> as you were making the point earlier on, Carl, that you're licking the screen uh, to see what was, what, was on, what was on the screen. I got to that stage and then uh, got introduced, introduced to Zoom text. But I found it quite hard to find a lot of any, the information I needed about low vision products. Uh, there were plenty of, of, of blind products out there, but I did find it difficult to find uh, information about low vision products um my problem is that i i moved fairly quickly within the space of a year to using jaws screen reader and the reason i did was because i was magnifying the screen too much so much with zoom text that i was losing my spot and if a dialogue popped popped up on the screen I was finding it very tedious to try and find those boxes and, and, and click and click them to make them go away so I'd kind of made the conscious decision to jump straight to for want of a better expression a blind product because I, I felt it was easier and better to be able to see everything on the screen or have everything on the screen and while you may not be able to see it at least you can you can hear it and you're not having to zoom in and zoom out to see what uh, what else is on the, on the screen so that's why I moved to uh, a jaws screen reader pretty pretty quickly and did you did you find just in terms of, of usability did you find just I suppose getting into the zone as it were with jaws easier than with zoom text yeah I, I, I think I did because I was 
I was probably less forgiving of Zoom of Zoom text because developers don't really spend enough time on low vision products. You mentioned about the the iPhone uh, voiceover versus Zoom. I don't think with the iPhone uh, the developers uh, spent enough time on the Zoom tech zooming feature than they did the, the voiceover feature. And it's the same I found with, with Zoom text. I was just getting so frustrated with it that I moved over to Jaws, and the transition was pretty. It was pretty smooth. Uh, there are a lot of keystrokes to learn, but it is it it does exactly what it says on the on the on the tin. But the only problem uh, I find is instead of getting eye fatigue, you get ear fatigue, where you're listening to this voice uh, all day, uh, because I'm spending you know more or less all day working away on, on my computer, and by early evening you're 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 just tired of this voice talking to you and you and you just long to be able to see what's on the screen and read it yourself with your own eyes but other than that jaws is it was a good leap to make but maybe if there had been other if developers paid a little bit more attention to low vision products i may not have needed to move to jaws so fast yeah, it's interesting because I'm sort of in the midst at the moment of trying to find a better solution for myself because I use Zoom text all of the time. Now it's getting to the stage where that's just not practical, not even just in the sense that I have the magnification up that high that, you know, there's sort of a letter at a time on the screen, but just that if, you know, if somebody sends me, oh, here's an interesting article I saw, have a read of it, you know, after a paragraph, two paragraphs in, my eyes start just you can feel the dryness the irritation the kind of you start rubbing them and i'm looking now at kind of saying right getting a balance between getting jaws to read the big long articles and the big long emails and and things like that and then when it comes to just going to a website and very quickly pointing at looking where okay where's i know where that box is i've been to this website before i can just find it very quickly with the mouse and click how do you resist the temptation to just find the button yeah some well with jaws you have um with their with version 14 and 15 you've got this thing called flexible web which when you go to websites that you regularly go to uh, you can define the uh, d- define a place marker to start reading at a particular place on that website uh, which is great i do use zoom text with websites that i uh, i would know fairly well and know where there might be a picture on the screen and there might be text underneath underneath that and i would i i might just uh, um, launch zoom text and read that portion of the text if i know exactly where it is but it's when you get when you start reading um either text word documents or or emails or websites and you're not sure uh, where things start and end uh, that I, that's where I find uh, zooming in is becoming a problem because you also uh, I also found this with, with, with manual um, magnifiers it's very hard to stay on the same line as you're going across and reading uh, oh, a yeah. line you tend to jump, you know, you tend to slip very quickly and that's that becomes really annoying whereas JAWS just reads what's on the screen and you don't have to worry about pointing and, and uh, pointing something in the correct, uh, at the correct uh, thing to get it to read. But that's why I've never used a magnifier. I know I have the built-in magnifier with, with, um, with Windows 7 and I've used Zoom text in the past but I've never used a magna- manual magnifier for that exact reason. I'd rather just hold the stuff close to my face and fly along. You know, I feel grateful that I can do that. But yeah, that's exactly it because you can only see a small bit at a time. Yeah, but I think it's I think it's interesting. I one of the things I I do uh, in work is I sometimes tend to uh, create a word document, but then save it as a PDF 
and I might save it as a PDF because I can use the plus and minus key to zoom in on the actual PDF. Sorry, do you not find the writing in PDFs really faint, though, no matter what you do? No, actually. Um, no? No, actually, there's... Uh, <laughs> I use I use Excel, actually, uh, quite a bit. Um, and I found when I'm using ZoomText with Excel, it's very pixelated. And oh. if I... If I, if I <laughs> convert that Excel sheet into a PDF and use the plus and minus uh, zoom, zoom options on, the, on Windows, uh, it's much easier to read. One of the things that I've uh, actually done is sort of similar with the PDF thing. Instead of saving it as a PDF, though, I will save it as an HTML file. And the reason I do that is because if you set up Firefox to do the control plus and minus and you go to view and then zoom and click on the text uh, zoom text only checkbox, and check that, then when you do control plus or minus, instead of zooming into the whole page and having to use your mouse and do the whole scrolling left and right and then scroll down, then left and right and then scroll down, your wrist gets very tired doing that. And so I will turn on that zoom text only feature on, and then it will automatically word wrap my document and I can just hit the down arrow and read that way. Um, in terms of reading long documents, what I will use, uh, because I don't have JAWS, I, this is a good tip for those of you who either can't afford JAWS or don't want to use a screen reader that would take over your whole system. What I do is uh, use this free program called Balabolka, and that's spelled B-A-L-A-B-O-L-K-A. And what it is is it's a program where you copy and paste text into it and then have it read by pressing F5, and it will read the text to you, but it will also follow the text along with a highlighter, so it will highlight each word as it's being read to you, so you can zoom the font of the Balabolka program and read along as it's reading it to you, so that really helps a lot. Well, that's part of the problem. You're you're talking about an outside, uh, a third-party uh, plug-in for your for your your Windows or your Mac. Um, what's frustrating me is you don't have uh, Microsoft or Apple uh, doing this sort of development before you have to go and buy a third-party uh, plug-in or uh, to to make the screen do what you want to make something read the way you want to read it or, or hear it or see it. And what I found interesting there, just what you guys were saying, I have never heard of any of those tips or tricks for, you know, saving as a PDF, never even thought of doing that for a document. Is it difficult to collate all this information and put it in one place, like a website, like... Like low vision rants. Probably about three websites. Yeah. Well, a, a resource that I find quite useful is a podcast that is produced by Serotech um, on their website, serotalk.com, S-E-R-O-T-A-L-K.com. They have a podcast called high contrast, and it kind of covers a lot of the same topics that we've covered today. The only thing i just just picking up there on what Byron was saying is just the lack of information. If there are more people really who have low vision than are blind, I think there should be more advertisements of this. Here locally, the NCBI should be doing something to inform the public about low vision as well as totally blind. And that doesn't seem to be happening in, in any country that I've heard of. I wonder, is it, when I walk into a room, somebody wouldn't necessarily know that I'm short-sighted. You know, it's not immediately apparent. I don't have a stick. I don't have a dog. Um, you know, it's only until I go to look for something. 
or need to read a sign or need to read something or looking for a particular person that I, you know, that I'll encounter difficulty. And it might become obvious and they're going, oh, he's squinting or he's looking a bit confused or a bit cross-eyed or a bit lost. Uh, is that maybe part of the difficulty that places like the NCBI would have is trying to explain, gee, well, we can explain blindness to people because you show them a picture of a dog and they go, oh, that's a guide dog or, oh, there's a white stick or there's a man or a woman that's blind. Whereas how do you convey, explain, get across message to people that, okay, here's somebody who looks like they don't have any problem at all with their vision, but actually they can only see three feet in front of them. Is that, is, I, wonder, is that, I wonder, is that part of the difficulty? I was going to say, uh, one of the things that I do, it seems like I, I'm a high partial, which is, you know, someone who has limited vision, but, uh, in, you know, I need limited amount of assistance to kind of make things work for me. But regardless, I still carry a cane with me. Um, and that is purely for identification most of the time. Sometimes uh, it is helpful when you are going down some stairs and the curbs are not painted. Uh, the sidewalk looks exactly the same as the sidewalk uh, two feet below you where there's a big step and you end up walking right over the edge of it and you fall on your face. And I know that a lot of people kind of balk at the idea of carrying a cane because they might think they might have too much vision. Uh, it, it takes away one extra hand from you. It makes me look more vulnerable and I live in a dangerous area and I don't want to get mugged because I have a cane. Um, now, I've never had a problem, and I, and I live in uh, a suburb of Chicago and frequent downtown Chicago all the time, but uh, I suppose that that fear is legitimate. But I'll tell you what, man, carrying a cane with you certainly helps a lot. You can ask someone for directions or ask someone to read you a sign or you know, ask for help, and no one ever looks at you weird. They just see that you have a cane. Um, however, I had a, I have a funny, a funny story sort of related to my cane. A couple of days ago, I was coming home from a friend's house. I was using my cane and this guy goes, Hey, uh, you, you know, that walking stick you have is for blind people, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm visually impaired. He goes, really? You don't look like you're visually impaired. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That's my fear. That is my fear that I'll be walking along, you know, and somebody will see me do something perfectly fine, you know, without, you know, by looking. And then the next thing, there will be those the infamous steps that are the same color and you go, you know, you go down three of them instead of going down one. But it's the idea that somebody says, hang on, I just saw you back there and you were perfectly fine. Yeah, I've, I've, I've found that too. I've only brought the cane in into play about for about two years and I do find that in work but also out, outside um, people do seem to d d query whether you are actually blind because you you might be able to see where you're going or think you know where you're going and yet you, you've also got this cane and there's a bit of confusion at some points to know do they need to open a door for you or or tell you where you are and help you out if I was to take off my glasses, for instance, and do the same, I find that people tend to open doors a lot quicker and, and help you than they do when you're wearing your glasses, But because they just don't understand what low vision means. People get weary of explaining themselves, and they probably try and they give in to the temptation to get away with passing themselves off as sighted, so that kind of adds to the visibility problem, too, for sighted people of low-vision people. It's a, it's a very interesting point you bring up there, Byron, about walking down steps and maybe 
uh, you're coming off, coming out of a building, and you're going onto the sidewalk or the path, as we would say here. And the colour between there's no distinction between the being on the on the path or the sidewalk and where and where the steps end. Yeah, a white line. That's all you need. It's easy mm-hmm. to do that. Well, and in fact, going back to talking about lack of resources for people who are visually impaired, you have all of these, you know, you have the talking book library. I don't know what you have in in, in Ireland, if it's the same thing as as what they have in the UK or if it's something different. But where are all of the large print books? You have a very limited selection. You've got one magazine that I know of that prominently uh, advertises that they have a large print version, and that's Reader's Digest. But, you know, where are my computer magazines in large print? They don't exist. Because they're not going to sell. And that's where that's where we are. We've fallen in between the gap. We're not blind. We don't have good vision. But there isn't enough of us out there making enough noise about this to get those companies to 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 not only print the normal copies of the magazine or the book in normal print, but also in large print because we're not vocal enough. And they're having a hard enough time to, uh, keeping the regular print versions out there anyway. Yeah. Uh, they call print dead media uh, because the electro- electronic version is sort of starting to take over. And that's actually a good thing for us in a way because, woohoo, we can change the font size most of the time. Uh, maybe we'll just take a look at uh, some of the, the technology you guys use. Obviously, we've covered a little bit of this already in terms of, uh, we've mentioned, obviously, Zoom text. We've talked about the really poor Zoom that is on the uh, Apple products. Say in terms of phones now, uh, Dervla and Oren as well, I know uh, you guys you prefer the Samsung uh, phone. What, what's, what was your story with that, Dervla? Uh, I, well, um, being uh, oddly patchy in my use of technology, I was reluctant to move to a smartphone, but there was a free upgrade, and that was to a HTC, and I found it quite a strain to use, but I kept it. But then I had it in my mind, I saw my partially sighted friends using um, Samsung phones. I saw how big and generous the text was, and how it contrasted nicely against the background. And I thought, when my next upgrade comes, I'll get a Samsung Galaxy, and that is exactly what I did, and it's delightful. There's huge text and enormous text, I think. That's in the accessibility menu. Uh, I use the huge text. It comes on a yellow background, which, again, is against a black background. That's when you're reading a text message. It's big throughout the entire phone, which wasn't the case for my HTC. You know, when I'm sending a text, um, looking at the menus, they're all big. Uh, the HTC, I could pinch the screen to make the text bigger when I got a text. When I was replying, it went back small again. And that doesn't happen with the, the Samsung. So... Uh- that's why I found it good. And when you're, um, uh, you know, if you're swiping through your the icons on the uh, home screen, does it, are they enlarged as well, or, or is, is that a zoomed up thing, or is it just the actual icons are big? I'd say they're they probably are the normal size, but they they just it, everything's just clear and defined on the phone. That's what I find. And Owen, you, did you have a similar experience with your? I know you're using an iPhone at the moment, but you, when you were using a Samsung, yeah, I have a, my I'm getting my Samsung repaired at the moment. Because, but I, just to answer the question you'd asked earlier there about the icons on the uh, home screen or home screens, they are regular size, but because you can zoom uh, so quickly, uh, all you do is just tap three times on the screen and uh, just zooms into the icons. So it's, it's much easier to, to use than the, the Apple. It's quite surprising up to up to the point where I was I w- I've had a, iPhone, a couple of iPhones for the last couple of years and only jumped to uh, an Android device last year. The difference is quite significant. Android are in terms of low vision and zooming they're really uh, winning hands down compared to Apple. 
Uh, one of the things that uh, I said I had to go back to my old uh, Apple iPhone 4S uh, just while this phone's getting my other phone's getting fixed, and I immediately upgraded to iOS 7. And the opacity on iOS 7 is just ridiculous in terms of low vision. Uh, and what is even frustrating me even more is uh, the keyboard on writing emails and texts is quite opaque against the quite light grey background. But when you're searching for something on the home screens, the keyboard is, uh, is black with white lettering. And I cannot figure out why Apple didn't allow you to be able to change the keyboard color, or and even the size. They've they've upgraded their 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 phones and they've got three three styles of keyboard, but you can't tweak it. You can't tweak it in the accessibility. Which model? Out of curiosity, because I know one thing about Android seems to be that it can vary hugely. Because obviously, uh, the, you can have an Android. You know, you can have a Samsung. You can have a HTC. You can have a Motorola. That all that all run Android, but they run their own skin over it, which can reduce the accessibility. Which model of Samsung is it? Well, I have a I have um, an, a Samsung S4. Now I need to put in a disclaimer. I bought a Samsung Galaxy Note first, and I found that there were less accessibility options on the Note than there were on the Samsung S4. So I, within a few days, I had switched back from a, from a Galaxy Note, which I bought, to a Galaxy S4. Byron, what about yourself? What, what, what phone are you on? Well, I have an iPhone 5S, and, uh, you know, one of the frustrating things about uh, iOS's Zoom is that when you're typing a text message or an email, uh, the keyboard gets zoomed in as well. So, so you have to zoom in and find the key that you want, uh, tap it, and then move with three fingers and find the next key. And from what I heard from our previous discussions uh, prior to this is that you can actually zoom in with Android, but your keyboard will stay the same size. So you can actually see the whole keyboard and type what you need to type and your zoomed in window still remains zoomed in. The other thing I wanted to point out to you guys that are using Android phones is I discovered when I had my Nexus 7 tablet, there is a launcher. Uh, this is basically a replacement home screen and app drawer for uh, what currently exists. And this may screw up some of the accessibility that's already in the uh, Galaxy, but Novo Launcher allows you to customize not only the app drawers, so it's a list instead of a grid of icons, and you can make the list uh, font size much bigger, but you can also make the, the size and the text of the icons on your home screen really big. So I, when I got that, I was like, ooh, that, that really helps. Just just for uh, diversity, I've got my second phone, my work phone, uh, is a mobile phone, and it's one of the old uh, number style uh, keys, which is brilliant. Just from, from a low vision perspective, it's a talking phone, but it has no, a numeric keypad, and it's fantastic. Uh, and I'm kind of of the mind that low vision people perhaps don't need to be using smartphones because they're not that good for, for everything. And perhaps <coughs> low vision is better to be used with something like uh, like a tablet. There's a company in the UK, they, they made phones with big buttons. They, they were kind of basic phones for people who had mobility problems. Is this Maybe the Dar 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 phone, is it? Uh, well, the, the Doro, actually, my husband has one. It, it does look easy to use. But um, no, they're called Silver something, Silver Light or something like that. And um, it kind of made more for mobility problems, you know, but at the same time, it's big buttons. Uh, it's like the way uh, a lot of um, low vision people used to use um, Nokia 3510i's, you know. Orange Writer is another solution. 
we have a phone company in the U.S. here called Jitterbug, uh, and they make phones with big buttons, and they market uh, primarily to senior citizens, but they should also market to people with low vision who maybe aren't ready yeah. for a smartphone yet. Cool. It's it's interesting, uh, Orin, you said there about um, you know uh, maybe not using smartphones if you're short-sighted because, it, let's be honest, they're not that great. I mean, you have the other problem of when you're out. I had this problem with a laptop. Um, I had Zoom text on it, and I thought, wow, when I'm on the train now, it'll be great. I can do some work. Of course you can't because unless you, you want see anything. Every, well, well, that I couldn't see anything because the screen was kind of the new laptop screen seemed to be this kind of shiny LEDs and and it's it, everything reflects off them. They're like mirrors, but also everyone else on the train would be privy to it. Now, not that I'm writing sort of uh, anything illicit or immoral in any kind of way, but still at the same time you don't like the feeling that everybody who walks up the carriage can see what you're doing. The same can happen with when using Jaws. If somebody else is in my office and I'm reading particularly sensitive, sensitive email, I generally stop if somebody else is in the room. Now, you can put in headphones or whatever, but the fatigue kind of increases very quickly if you are using your headset all the time to listen to JAWS. So it's kind of the same thing uh, with, the, with Zooming and with speech. At some point, you know, you've, you've got to be careful about what, uh, what the person behind you can see or the person in the room can, can also hear. And is there any other, just I suppose finally, just to wrap up, any other little apps? Um, say, Byron, I know you've, uh, say in terms of Twitter, um, there's an app that you use that you find quite good to, uh, visually to look at. You know, Twitter clients are one of those things that uh, th- there is no real good solution out there for people who are visually impaired. There's a couple of programs out there that kind of work, uh, but but they all kind of have their own problems. What I use for Twitter is Janitor, and it's spelled J-A-N-E-T-T-E-R. That's Janitor. And the cool thing about it is it's completely customizable. You can make the background dark. You can make the text nice and big. There is a limit, though, to how large the text will go, which is sort of a shame. Uh, And on my iPhone, I use a Twitter client called Twitterific. And that, again, has a lot of customization features, which is great. But I wish somebody would make a Twitter client that had speech access because janitor is not accessible with jaws or anything like that but i wish somebody would make a, a twitter client that had large print and was also accessible so if anybody out there who is a coder who is listening i, I challenge thee i am throwing down the gauntlet make an accessible twitter client that i can use i, I would yeah, just suggest um the built-in windows 7 magnifier to people who want to move from xp to windows 7 even though it's it's not quite as good as zoom text say people who you magnify it twice three four times the normal size like like myself um it it is actually good and it means you can buy a new computer without having to wait for the zoom text update to come in and Oren, is there anything any software you found along your uh, travels recently that you found particularly useful uh, no, I'm still trying to find the best app for uh, for walking around. Um, I've come up on anything yet, um, but I still think my jump to Jaws uh, is probably the best move I've made so far. But somebody might develop something for low vi- for low vision users that might appeal to me in the future. Okay, guys, uh, thanks very much uh, for your time and for sharing your experiences. Hopefully we've shed some light on the difficulties that can be faced by people who either find themselves losing their eyesight or are visually impaired. Um, I suppose, you know, as we mentioned, maybe it's time to look at getting together a resource in the same way that there are, I suppose, podcasts and websites and 
services for totally blind users of technology. Maybe there needs to be some efforts made towards uh, developing a similar thing for the visually impaired just to get knowledge and information out there. I know we tend to, as we all agreed, tend to sort of just struggle on and get by, but uh, maybe we can, maybe this is the beginning of an idea to get more information out there around uh, short-sighted or partially sighted issues with relation to technology. Uh, thanks to Oren O'Neill, thanks to uh, Dervla Graham, thanks to Byron Lee and uh, myself, Carl Joyce, of course, I might as well thank myself. Uh, Byron's website, by the way, once again is lowvisionrants.com uh, if you want to go on there and find out a little bit more about uh, some of the things we were talking about today or just to blow off some steam. Well, what a discussion that was. Many thanks to Carl Joyce for taking so much time to pull it all together and to our three wonderful panellists, Byron Lee, Oren O'Neill and, of course, Dervila Graham. As a totally blind person listening to that discussion, I don't know about any of the rest of you, but I found it really, really interesting. And I've certainly learned a lot in the last uh, 33 or 34 minutes of that discussion, not just about how people with low vision struggle with some aspects of their technology, but just general things as well. I mean, there was an interesting discussion there about people carrying a cane and what that might mean. So, Well done, guys. A really, really fantastic piece of work. And thank you so much for taking the time to participate in our technology podcast. Now, uh, links mentioned by our panellists and, of course, Jonathan Mosen will be found on the show notes for this month's episode. So please check those out. And that's just about it. Join us in April when, amongst other things, I'll be speaking to Sam Jewell about the giraffe stand. And we're scratching the surface with Microsoft's latest tablet. Until then, this is Stuart are saying goodbye, take care and thank you for listening.